0: Hello and welcome to Queer is Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the drag king and queer activist Stormy DeLovey. Before we begin, I have some content warnings for this episode. We'll be talking about racism, including segregation in the USA, and racially motivated violence, including specifically targeting mixed-race people. We'll also be discussing period homophobia and, more broadly, queerphobia. There will also be the use of some potentially homophobic language in quotes, although not used pejoratively specifically within these quotes, mentions of guns and knives, discussions of neglect within the aged care system, and mentions of dementia. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content.
1: How in detail about the dementia content do you go?
0: Like, basically, I'm just going to say, they have dementia. Like, it's not a big part of the episode. Yeah. I'd also like to note a couple of other things before we begin. One is that I'm going to be using they, them pronouns for Stormy in this episode, and we'll discuss this decision later on, and you can tell me your thoughts on it. Um... I also want to add that regardless of what pronouns I choose or anyone else chooses, Stormy has said themselves that they identify as a
2: woman. Okay. I look forward to this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Intriguing choices, (laughs) Alice.
0: Also, if you're listening to this episode hoping to learn about Stonewall, this is not the episode for you, I'm sorry. We will have an episode coming out in Pride Month this year for the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, talking about that in a lot more depth. So, today I'm going to be talking about all the aspects of Stormy's life that aren't related to Stonewall. Um So, in terms of sources on Stormy's life, there is no biography,
2: like, no book
0: biography of Stormy.
2: I hate it when no one just does all of the work for us.
0: Yeah, frankly that's a big hole in the scholarship. <laughs> and if you're wondering what to do with your life in the next, like, two or three years, maybe you should write that biography, listeners. Um, So most of my information about Stormy comes from watching and reading interviews with them, most notably Michelle Parkinson's 1987 documentary Stormy, Lady of the Jewel Box. The Jewel Box? The Jewel Box is the drag show that Stormy performed in. Stormy was also generally a very private person, especially with regards to talking about their early life and their personal life, so there are big gaps in our knowledge about them, and we're just going to have to accept that until somebody writes the biography.
2: And probably even then,
0: right? Yeah, probably even then, a lot of the information just won't be there. Stormy Delavier was born in 1920 in New Orleans. And I'm just going to say now, their surname is pronounced Delavier. You will hear it said Delovary a fair bit, because that is how it's spelt. But Stormy themselves says Delavier. I spent a long time like trying to find people saying their name, and then I finally got my hands on an interview where they said their name, and I was like, yes, thank God. <laughs> so Stormy celebrated their birthday on December 24th but they weren't actually sure of the exact date they were born and their birth was never officially registered because they were the child of a white father and a black mother. So not only was interracial marriage illegal in New Orleans in 1920, but interracial sex or relationships of any sort were also illegal. So Stormy's existence put their parents at risk of prosecution and their birth was never registered for that reason. Stormy's father was a very wealthy white man their mother was a servant who worked for their father's family. I see. Stormy's comments about this suggest that their parents did actually have a good and loving relationship. Um, They say that their mother never wanted for anything from their father, and their parents eventually left New Orleans and moved to California, where they could legally marry.
2: Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You
0: sound dubious, but that's all the information I've got. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um... What a nice outlier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Stormy's father paid for them to receive a good education, but at the same time they struggled a lot in childhood with bullying because of their race.
2: Just one moment. Like, is Stormy their real name? Is that what's
0: happening? Stormy is the only name I'm aware of them ever going by, but their birth was never registered, so what is a real name?
2: Yeah, but, like, are they called this as a small child? I don't know. Like, when in life do we first know that they were being called this by other people?
0: Um, Probably in the 30s or 40s, probably the 40s, when they start kind of their public performing career and they're advertised in newspapers as Stormy. Okay. They originally performed under the name Stormy Dale, Stormy with a Y, and then later performed under Stormy Delavier, spelt with an E with an accent. Okay. But
1: I don't know of any
2: other name they ever went by. Okay.
1: I don't believe that Stormy
2: is a plausible name. Yeah, yeah. But I'd also believe it's a made up stage name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it could
0: be either. They are sometimes referred to as Storm and sometimes the way people talk about it gives the impression that Stormy is a nickname from Storm. So they may have just been named Storm, but I don't know.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Fine. And I don't know if their surname was Dale or Delavier or something else entirely. So yeah, those are the sort of massive gaps in knowledge that
2: I mentioned we have. good
0: yeah yeah there was one interview that I read from the 70s where somebody had interviewed stormy and then written an article about them and they said stormy never knew their real parents and they were raised by foster parents and this didn't line up with later comments stormy makes about speaking to their parents and the information is just a bit all over the place What? okay but stormy generally speaks as though they were raised by their parents and they did know their parents So I don't know where this interviewer pulled this information from.
1: Was this interview with Stormy?
0: Yeah. They did an interview with Stormy, but they didn't, you know, write up a transcript of the interview. They then wrote up an article based on their interview with Stormy. So there were no quotes from Stormy about being raised by foster parents. It just says within the prose, Stormy was raised by foster parents. Okay.
2: That is real weird yeah
0: yeah yeah another one once again somebody who did an interview and then kind of talked about that said stormy was raised by a grandfather i don't know
1: which grandfather i guess there may have been a period at some point in stormy's childhood where they were not with their parents yeah so i don't know if they were raised
0: by their parents but they definitely talk as though they knew their parents Mm. they also mentioned having a brother I found exactly one mention, and by that I mean one sentence in which Stormy says "my brother," that refers to this. And, and you were like,
2: "Hang on a minute," and then <laughs> yeah. it never came up again.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, I feel when you're in the one sentence territory, you're like, "Was that biological? Was this your best friend?" Did like, you just, frankly, mean... I don't know.
0: Yeah, I was like, "Was that just like a bro? Like, what did you mean?"
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
0: like they mentioned in childhood their brother in a context where they were being violently bullied and their brother stepped in to help, like to assist Stormy. That's all I know about their
2: brother. Okay. Well, I'm glad from that one sentence that their relationship with their brother seems to have been generally positive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I guess we'll never hear about them again. Um, Okay. Continue. Yeah. So Stormy was bullied very badly and often very violently in childhood by both black and white children in their neighbourhood because, as they said, quote, my mother was black and I have a white face.
1: Hmm.
0: And this continued until they were 15 when their father told them, in Stormy's words, if I didn't stop running, I'd be running the rest of my life. So I stopped running and I haven't run a day since. And so at this point they began to fight back against their bullies. Stormy presents this as a very like, linear, I didn't fight back at all, my father said this, and that was it, I beat up the bullies. It's probably more complicated than that. But they credited their difficult childhood and you know this bullying that they faced with teaching them to defend themselves and to defend others later in life. As Stormy put it, however, their family, quote, had to get me out of New Orleans or I would have been killed. We don't know exactly where the family moved to or when. As I mentioned, their parents did marry in California at some point. And we only know snippets about Stormy's teenage years. They mentioned that they rode horses with the Ringling Brothers Circus, which was a very famous circus of its day. What? (laughs) That's all I've got for you. They had a bad fall. At some point in their teen circus career and broke several bones and that was the end of their teen circus career okay that was
1: that was it a brief blip in their life <laughs> <laughs>
0: yep and from about 17 or 18 stormy also began performing as a singer in nightclubs the next time we know specifically about their whereabouts was when they took a two-week gig fronting a jazz band for an amateur contest in Nebraska. And they framed this as what kind of started their performing career. And from then, their career basically just continued to grow. They performed as a jazz singer, fronting big bands and things like that for the next 15 years. They even toured Europe during this time. Cool. Once again, that's all the information I have on that. Okay. <laughs> are there are
1: there like newspaper clippings or something
0: well we're very very lucky in australia that we have trove where you can just search any australian newspaper online and the rest of the world doesn't have that service
2: that's horrifying yeah so frankly, what? i
0: did a bit of searching and i found a few newspaper archives that you know advertise performances by singer stormy dale just in the u.s i didn't find any from europe but i don't know how well european newspapers are available via like a google search so yeah i don't know this is what you'd find out if you wrote Stormy's biography.
2: Say what you like about Mormons. <laughs> but at least they're going around wildly digitizing stuff.
0: That's for true. All that they're
2: worth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Mormons. So during this time during this part of their career, Stormy was presenting in a very traditionally feminine way. They're wearing dresses and makeup, they have long hair, and that's both on and off stage.
1: I've seen like three pictures of Stormy ever, but this is strange to imagine. There are pictures of them at this time, but
2: they go rid of this look pretty quickly. So okay. How much do we know about them offstage at this time, like about their life at this time? Nothing. So but we know that they presented as traditionally feminine
0: off stage. Uh, I know that because they talk about how and we'll talk about it later, they started presenting masculine off oh, okay. stage as a result of presenting masculine
2: oh, on stage. So that was okay.
0: what got them into that style of dress. So for now, they are presenting feminine. It's very rare, as I mentioned, for Stormy to talk about their private life or their sexuality. But in a 2010 interview, they did say that in their teen years, they had vague feelings that they were different. And then around 18, quote, one day I woke up and went, oh. And this is presented in this interview as them realizing they were interested in women. I'm not clear if they were talking about, you know, sexuality or gender presentation or what, but that's
1: the way the interview framed this. I always just think it's a little bit funny how in fiction, when people spend their whole childhood knowing that they're somehow different, they turn out to have magic powers. Yeah. (laughs) And that's that's very much not what happens. That's true. Well, Stormy realised
0: that they were attracted to women. uh huh More Um, relatable. They make no mention of seeking out other queer people or being involved with the queer community at this earlier time in their life. Their first and only relationship that we know of started in the late 40s or
1: early 50s with a woman named Diana. Is the reason you only told us Diana's first name because you know nothing about Diana too? Yeah. (laughs) I don't
0: know her surname. Cool. Um, So I've got a quote from Stormy which sums up pretty much every single fact I have about Diana right here. Okay, let's go. ready. So Stormy says, "'She was my life. She was a dancer and an aerialist. She was a beauty. She didn't care what I did as long as I was happy. We had a good time being alive.'" Oh, that sounds nice.
2: That sounds fantastic.
0: Don't, yeah, sounds good. Like, it's great, but that's all I've got. Yeah.
2: She's an aerialist. She is an yeah. aerialist.
0: Yeah. Good. Yeah, she sounds pretty cool. Mm.
2: I'm sad that we'll never know anything about this woman. Do you ever think about just, like, going to every newspaper archive in the world and reading every newspaper and putting aside the gay ones? Mm. A good idea. Mm. I want this so much. If I could become a mortal, this is what I would do. <laughs> I'd become fluent in every language and find literally every queer piece of history that survives. That's very good. And then I would have to keep reinventing myself as I published (laughs) (laughs) out of the plausible stretch of a human lifespan.
1: But you would just become like an incredibly more nuanced academic.
2: Yes. I would be next level, but I could never present at conferences because presumably I I would not be able to go in the sun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not that academics go in the sun over it much. I think about this, like, twice a week.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now we're going to move into the phase of
2: Stormy's life that we do know a bit about. Oh my god. Let's go have some facts. We (laughs) need to, like, live up to the name of this podcast quick.
1: (laughs) Queer is vague (laughs)
2: rumours. Which are pretty queer, historically.
1: Yeah, True.
0: Stormy was friends with Danny Brown and Doc Brenner, who were two men who ran the Jewelbox Review, which was a touring drag show that operated out of Miami. I very much picture
2: Danny Brown and Doc Brenner being two men in a trench coat.
0: There are photographs of Danny Brown and Doc Brenner, and they are two separate men. Okay. So, the Jewelbox Review was billed as 25 men and a girl. So the gimmick was that the audience was supposed to try and guess which of the 25 drag queens on stage was really the girl. And then in a song late in the show, it was revealed that the girl was in fact the masculine presenting MC of the show. I think you should clarify
1: that you said really in like
0: air quotes. Yeah. I'll also add that some of the drag queens were trans women, so it was not 25 men. But that was... I suspected. This. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's what was on the poster. Okay.
2: I mean, I can see how that would be clickbait for, like, just, you know, middle America. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 1940s clickbait. Well, it's the 1950s now. It's 1955, in fact. Danny and Doc were short a MC for their show, and so Stormy stepped into the role. Stormy expected this to be a six-month engagement, and they say they largely took it on as a joke, basically because people told them not to and said, it'll ruin your reputation to perform in a drag show and so forth. So they said, nah, I'm going to do it. Okay. So at this
2: stage, they're still presenting quite feminine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what's the audition process like for this show, though? Also, like, if Stormy goes in as this quite traditionally feminine-looking person, do they have to like, in some way, <laughs> convince the I'm... DBs that they can pull <laughs> this <DBs>. role off? <laughs> DB squared.
0: It sounds more like the DBs were like, oh, no, we need someone. And Storm was a friend and was like, I mean, I can do it. They have a very low singing voice, Mm, which is probably
2: a fact. Do they have like long hair at this point? Does that
0: matter? They cut their hair when they stepped into the role. But yeah, before that, they did have long hair. And I assume they had long hair when the DBs were like, hey, can you do this job? So I guess they were just like, nah, we reckon you're the person for the role. Or you're the only person here, I guess. I did read some interviews with the drag queens who were in the show and they talk about going through an audition process that ranged from, look, just turn up and do a show with us and we'll see how you go, to turn up and take off your trousers and we'll see if we like your legs, to like actually doing a traditional audition where you perform a song. Okay. So I don't know. It's a bit all over the place. So DB Squared was a bit wild
1: in their recruitment. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it probably depends a lot on who you knew and whether you were
2: recommended or whether you just walked off the street and said, I'd like a job. I would like, like, infinitely more information about these drag queens and their life. Thank you. Okay.
0: I'll link some interviews with them on our
2: blog. Are you telling me, one of the hosts of the show, to, like, check our social media afterwards to follow <laughs> yeah. the links? All right, I guess I will then.
1: <laughs> I just have questions about what was considered a, like, ideal drag queen leg in the 1950s well the sort of ideal shape of a feminine leg has changed quite a bit since then
0: that's true you can look at some photos of these drag queens and check out their legs yeah okay
1: there's quite a lot of photos
0: of them there is one website called i think it's queer music heritage or something like that which has just gone and collated a bunch of press clippings and scanned them all and put them up cool I wonder if the person who runs it is a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Your future. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, as the MC for the Box review, Stormy cut their hair, and their costumes for this role consisted of tailored suits, or sometimes naval uniforms, and sometimes also a false moustache.
1: <laughs> Why naval
0: uniforms? Because people think naval uniforms are sexy, like.
2: Yeah, butch.
0: That's the, that's the reason. <laughs> Stormy says. I tried to do the proper thing, you know, wearing men's clothes on stage and women's clothes on the street. But then they soon shifted to wearing men's clothes in their day-to-day life as well.
2: Interesting.
0: They don't give a huge amount of reasons for this. In that same interview where they say, I tried to do the proper thing, they then go on and say, but wearing women's clothes on the street, they were picked up a few times for being a drag queen. Oh, okay. And so, like, in the interview, they visibly just, like, throw up their hands and, like, I can't win. Like... What do I do?
1: Mm.
0: So they started presenting
1: masculine. That's like the only reasoning you've presented us with there is an odd direction. Yeah. Yeah. They kept getting arrested because I didn't look feminine enough, so I stopped trying.
0: Yeah, they do really emphasize that when they went on stage as a man, they didn't change anything about themselves. So they say, all I did was cut my hair and change. I walked the same, I talk the same. All I had to do was just be me and let people use their imaginations. So
2: so gender is so weird. Gender, gender
1: is frankly baffling and I don't understand. I just
2: can we I did like the trial period's been nice. But could we maybe just admit that this product should go the way of like pancake wrapped around frankfurters and stop being produced now
1: <laughs> I, I agree
2: frankly. <laughs> i'm so tired <laughs> but it's just interesting is that like some people are like oh yeah i just like cut my hair and then like no matter what i did i couldn't be red as a woman anymore and other people are like i spent my entire life trying to get red as a man yeah and there's nothing i could do to make that happen and it's just like what is going on <sighs> i want to go to bed
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I don't know. know. Yeah, Stormy presents it as a very easy thing. Okay, so before we talk more about Stormy's presentation, I'm going to talk very briefly about the history of drag and specifically of male impersonation. So drag performances featuring both men and women had their heyday in the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Drag queens were always more numerous than drag kings, but both existed. Is this heyday more of a heyday than the current heyday? Probably not, no. Okay. It was probably more of a heyday for drag kings.
1: Okay. I'd say, I mean... Yeah. I was going to ask, and this is, like, wildly left of field and you won't know.
2: <laughs> we have to have one of those questions for One episode. of those
1: questions. This is very much the era that, like, the Takarazuka review comes from. The Japanese um, yeah. women dressed as men theatre company? Yeah, and I mm. wonder whether... I don't know how much it comes from that culture. It's seen in Japan as a fairly non-threatening sort of... Like non-subversive? Yeah, mm-hmm. like a fairly not subversive thing to do. So were you asking me, like, how did these cultures influence each other? I was sort of just asking how it was seen in this period in America. Uh, okay, so, like, presumably we're talking to some extent about a similar kind of... Thing, you know, women performing as men on stage Yeah,
0: yeah, so there were just women who performed in male roles on stage So one very famous one is um, Charlotte Cushman Who played the role of Romeo in productions of Romeo and Juliet And their sister played the role of Juliet, weirdly
2: <laughs> Okay that's fine, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: like, theoretically fine, but in practice, mildly uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, I don't, in principle, have problems with this, but I would feel weird if you played Juliet to my Romeo.
0: Yeah, it's weird. Like, I assume it was a very chaste production of Romeo and Juliet, but, like, it's still weird. Charlotte Cushman presented Masculine on and off stage. I had a bunch of relationships
2: with women. We should do an episode on her sometime. I assume we're about to give a bunch of examples of drag Kings. Yeah. And I assume that you haven't researched any of them in depth apart from Stormy. Yeah. How sure are you that they're women?
0: Um, It varies.
2: Okay. I just was wondering if your language was deliberate or not in referring to all of these women and in in the pronouns you're about to use and so forth.
0: Yeah, that's probably, probably true. I don't know much about Charlotte Cushman's gender identity. Yeah, maybe Charlotte Cushman wasn't a woman. That is a fair point. So what I was going to say is a little bit before Charlotte Cushman, there was a woman named Vesta Tilly who was doing a similar thing of um, performing masculine roles on stage, but she presented very feminine offstage. She married a man, she had a very conventional relationship with him, as far as we know. Some of the scholars I read sort of said that Vesta Tilly deliberately kind of hyper feminized herself offstage to avoid the stigma associated with being a male impersonator on stage and the assumptions about your gender or sexuality or whatever that might go along with that.
2: Is her real name Vesta? No,
0: Vesta's the okay. stage name. I can't remember yeah. her I was
2: name like, is. what a hell of a name for a, like, cross dresser to have.
0: Generally, in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, these shows were seen as, like, family entertainment. They were subversive in so far as people would ask questions about the people playing these roles, but they weren't subversive in, like, you have to go to an underground bar to mm. see them.
1: Oh, yeah, okay.
2: So it's this thing where, like, the fair game is entertainment, but offstage, they're unacceptable?
0: Yeah, I think it's something like that, yeah. So that's in the early 20th century, and things had changed by the time Stormy was doing this work. So in the 1920s and 30s, there was a general shift in attitudes towards... So around the 1920s and 30s, there was a general shift in attitudes towards things like sex depicted on screen, cross-dressing on stage, all those kinds of things.
1: Hold on a second. So... Before this period, people were more chill about sex being depicted on screen.
0: Yeah. So this is when the Hays Code came in, in Hollywood, and they got like much stricter about what you can show. Oh, so there was like this brief period which was much more lenient than the following decade, yeah. Okay. So drag, which had previously, as I said, been seen as kind of family-appropriate entertainment, went more underground. Elizabeth Drauber... I don't know how to say her name, it's spelled D-R-O-R-B-A-U-G-H. Anyway. Elizabeth Drauber, who wrote an article about Stormy and kind of their place in the history of cross-dressing, links this change in attitudes, particularly towards cross-dressing and male impersonators, with the pathologization of homosexuality and the connection of that with cross-dressing. So in 1921, a doctor wrote in the Medical Review of Reviews about that class of female who gains sexual satisfaction from association with other females quite common amongst the chorus girl type. They wear strictly tailor-made clothing, low shoes, so not heels, and they seldom wear corsets. The hair is usually bobbed. So this image of a woman in men's clothing was associated with queer women, and it became even more inappropriate, both on stage as well as off stage, as it had previously been. The scholar Jack Halberstam notes, however, that there was a strong continuing tradition of male impersonation among black performers, notably Gladys Bentley. Like Stormy, Gladys was assigned female at birth, performed as the only male presenting performer in a drag show, and wore masculine clothing offstage as well as on. Robin Maltz, writing about the connection between male impersonation and the stone butch lesbian identity, continues this theme of an ongoing underground drag king scene. Although Maltz doesn't include the discussion of race, several of the performers that she talks about are also black, and Maltz paints these drag kings as being erotic, seductive lesbian figures who, quote, lived their lives of virility and prowess on and off stage and were seducers of femmes and straight women alike. Okay. Lisa E. Davis, who writes about this era, having talked to many of the performers who were involved, says stage-struck female fans tipped their favourites exorbitantly and bought rounds of drinks for everyone. They hung around in mobs waiting for their butchers to finish the show. The offers range from one-night stands to 35-foot yachts. <laughs> Sometimes a wealthy femme married her dyke in Mexico and endowed her with a small fortune." That's probably a reference to Gladys Bentley, who did marry a woman and honeymooned in Mexico. Did they honeymoon in a 35-foot yacht? I don't know if the yacht's also a reference to Gladys Bentley or not. <laughs> so the way Malton and Davis write about male impersonation also highlights how that subculture was closely connected with the culture of butch lesbians. Recent articles about Stormy almost universally refer to them as a lesbian, but Penny Coleman, who interviewed Stormy for her book Village Elders, notes, and as far as I'm aware this is true, that Stormy never describes themselves as a lesbian. This might be due to the fact that Stormy just didn't really talk about their sexuality. They didn't use any other words to label their sexuality either. It might also be that the word wasn't one that resonated with Stormy. Davis quotes a friend who was involved in the same kind of scene not long before Stormy and was asked later if she'd be interested in being involved in a project interviewing older lesbians, to which she answered, do they have to use that word? Only the bastards on the street used that word.
1: The bastards
0: on the street? (laughs) And then people like catcalling lesbians when they're driving past like two women together or something like that.
1: Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, that's not what I've ever heard of as being like thrown around as a slur.
0: Yeah,
2: well, apparently in the experience of this woman, at least that was the case. I mean, I guess it's not that surprising. Like, both the words gay and lesbian were predominantly used as slurs rather than terms of self-identification in my youth.
0: That's true. I definitely knew the word gay as people being like, ugh, that's so gay, long before I understood that it was about, like, men being attracted to men or women being attracted to women.
1: Yeah, same. But I definitely – I had no sense of the word lesbian – Being anything to do with sexuality Or being a pejorative I remember understanding that it meant a woman Who was masculine in some way And that's kind of all I understood
2: Oh interesting Okay, Okay. Mm.
1: I don't remember knowing about the word lesbian As a child at all really I just have this distinct memory of an argument I had with a friend When I was in about like grade 3 or 4 So I was probably like eight or nine. And we had this argument where we were trying to figure out what a lesbian was. And I've forgotten the way it went. But one of us understood that lesbians wore like plaid shirts and had short (laughs) hair. And the other was like, no, no, no. My mum has a friend who's a lesbian and she's got long hair. And we were like, so how do we know what is a lesbian if just any woman could be one? (laughs) I love it. I love it. <laughs> but I definitely don't remember hearing it in the same like negative contexts that we heard gay when we were kids.
0: Yeah, it's not used in the same just like anything you don't like. It's like, oh, that's a lesbian. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So there was an interview done with Stormy in 2010, where that quote I mentioned before about Stormy waking up one morning when they were 18 and going, oh queer happened. (laughs) They didn't use the word queer which is what I'm going to discuss right now. And the interviewer said to them so this was in like the late 30s early 40s what was that like there wasn't really a gay community there wasn't a gay identity There wasn't even a word for gay like how was that experience? Wow gay people just didn't exist then. Yeah this interviewer I feel like had simplified the situation somewhat. And Stormy said no there was a word queer was what they called us. The interviewer in their article then says in the prose, this word was used as a slur, but the quote from
2: Stormy doesn't make that clear or not. I think we oversimplify what we put as good words and bad words when discussing terminology and the history of our communities.
0: I think we do. And I'm not trying to say, oh look, the word queer was the one they used. I'm just saying, you know, here's another example of a term that was used at the time that has many connotations. But yeah, Stormy never did apply any label to their sexuality. Drauber describes Stormy's unwillingness to label themselves as, quote, deeply confounding. <laughs> really? <laughs> to somebody trying to talk and write about Stormy's identity. And like, Drauber says this with awareness. That's not Stormy's fault. Mm. That's just frustrating
2: as a researcher. I guess that's fair. I guess like part of this episode is us being deeply confounded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Drauber also reflects that audiences of the Jewelbox had the same reaction of being deeply confounded. And even on finding out that Stormy was the girl of the show's headline, and I'm doing the air quotes, they didn't know how to proceed in talking about Stormy. So reviews, for example, often refer to Stormy's voice as being baritone, even though they know they're writing about a
1: woman. I mean, a baritone is still a deeper voice than any of the words we use to describe women's voices.
0: Well, the word for a woman's voice in that register would be contralto. Yeah, which I guess was in use commonly enough at the time that like several different articles I read pointed out that it was unusual that they used baritone. So while Stormy generally eschewed labels in terms of their sexuality, however, they did label their gender. So talking to Penny Coleman, they said, Don't let the clothes fool you. Under here is a stone-cold woman who's been fighting her way through half the universe since the day she was born. This isn't the only quote where they emphasize that regardless of presentation, they are a woman. So you've probably noticed that Stormy used she, her pronouns in that quote. And that i'm using they them pronouns so i'm going to justify myself now i've been waiting <laughs> <do>. to ask. <laughs> you can debate me if you want to so if you watch a video of stormy's memorial service which is available online and which i watched in my desperate quest for any scrap of information about stormy you'll notice that both he him and she her pronouns are used by stormy's friends when talking about stormy and using he him pronouns is a convention which exists and existed among butch lesbians and drag kings. Stormy's friend Williamson Henderson, when asked by Grace Chu, who was planning to interview Stormy and wanted to know what pronouns to use for Stormy, Williamson Henderson specifically answered he-him pronouns, saying, If it looks like a he, and talks like a he, and walks like a he, and acts like a he, and particularly dresses like a he, then it's positively a he. Posolutely. That's what Williamson Henderson said,
2: yes. Oh, okay. I mean, I understand that that was an odd thing to, like, bring as my first question (laughs) to that quote, but I thought we'd just get it out of the way. Yeah, no, that's the word that
1: Williamson used. I mean, frankly, coming up against Stormy's quote that was like, don't let the clothes confuse you under here is a woman. Mm. Like, that's Williamson Henderson speaking directly in the face of what Stormy has said.
0: Well, what Stormy says about pronouns in particular is people used to ask me if I preferred being called he or she. I said, whatever makes you comfortable. And they also say in another interview, some say sir, some say ma'am. It makes no difference to me.
2: I really don't know what to do. And I'm speaking as a binary trans person who doesn't know enough about experiences that aren't my own with like people we talk about on this podcast who use pronouns where those pronouns aren't necessarily linked to any kind of way that they understand themselves or their identity Mm. or anything like that i don't know that's just like not my personal experience of what pronouns do like obviously there's a lot of people for whom pronouns function in their lives differently from how they do in my life that's Mm -hmm. totally fine but like i guess i'm used to coasting on having personal experiences (laughs) that i can just kind of like (laughs) infer Existed in some way. I'm very conscious that I feel like Stormy and I have had just wildly different experiences of the world.
1: I still think it's interesting. You've come out of several conversations where someone's essentially gone, Do you like he or she? And Stormy's been like, Either of those is fine. And you've chosen they.
0: Yeah. So the reason I chose they was because I had no good way of representing in one podcast. That both he and she were fine. I'm not going to switch back and forth between he and she in one podcast, that's going to be
2: very confusing.
0: I don't know, maybe it's not, maybe we'll try it sometime.
2: Because there certainly are, like I personally have friends who use multiple sets of pronouns mm-hmm. and that's not something that we see very often in like, you know, yeah. books, yeah. media or whatever. So there's that like idea that exists in like gender diverse spaces that if someone uses two sets of pronouns it's a good idea to use the more uncommon version of it because you're mm-hmm. kind of like normalizing the use of that pronoun where people aren't necessarily used to that so maybe it is an idea like when we come across people like stormy to switch it up
0: yeah so I'm, that
2: we like normalize people hearing that in conversation and kind of like getting used to that sort of thing that's true that's true and yeah i
0: think it would be valid to switch it up. And the reason I chose not to do it was because I thought it might be confusing. But on the other hand, we've critiqued that idea in other settings. For example, when people have said, oh, but quotes of the time will use she pronouns for this person. I can't use he pronouns because you'll get too confused if we're talking about, say, a trans man. And we've said, oh, you'll get confused. Doesn't give your reader enough credit. Your reader will pick it up. So maybe I should have given our listeners more credit.
2: It's kind of interesting also because like obviously stormy heard both she and he Mm -hmm. referring to them (laughs) (laughs) referring to stormy in their everyday life i'm just gonna keep using they for the moment like i i'm not gonna change what i've been doing for the episode midway through the conversation about pronouns because that could potentially get a little bit hairy Um, (laughs) it could be confusing but what they seem to be referring to is that some people would call them he and some people would call them she Mm. based on like that person's individual idea about what was going on with stormy's gender Mm. or with how gender functioned in general like with that guy saying like if it walks like a duck kind of thing but presumably stormy wasn't hearing a lot of like people using he and she pronouns interchangeably as a recognition that stormy didn't necessarily fall neatly within the gender binary Mm. or people like switching you know in different settings necessarily yeah
0: I don't know because, and I don't know how this would have applied to Stormy, but in other settings of drag, you do yeah. see people using, say, if you've got a drag king using he pronouns about their stage persona or while they're on stage, and she pronouns if they're a woman when they're mm. off stage. But Stormy's presentation wasn't different on and off stage, mm. so I don't know if they would have experienced that.
2: Yeah, I don't know. Like, I just I think it's interesting that we can take this example of people using both he and she pronouns. At the time, and then potentially decide to use both he and she pronouns for like, arguably quite different reasons. Mm. I, like, I'm not saying we need to conclude anything or like necessarily change our language on the basis of that. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. So, do we know if there was much of a difference? Like, because I know we've said that Stormy still dressed in a masculine way off stage, mm. but is there a difference in like the levels of masculinity that they? perform on and off stage or like is there a difference in persona there or did they essentially like create a drag king persona and then just be like oh i guess this is me now forever
0: i think the way stormy talks about it they didn't even really create a drag in persona they just put on a suit and then they just continue to go about their life interesting
1: yeah there was that quote before where stormy was like i didn't change anything i just They just cut
0: their hair and put on a suit and then went about their life both on and off stage. And they do specifically say, like, I was still me. I didn't change anything. Mm. Yeah, so I don't think they really had an on-stage persona, and they do contrast it with the drag queens they performed with, who in the jewel box all took on specific, like, female roles. So one was Cleopatra, and one was um, Helen of Troy, and they specifically contrast the way the drag queens put on a persona on stage to the way they were just themselves. And they were
2: wearing a suit. But I feel like, sure, these drag queens are like literally playing a role, and that mm. none of these people were actually Cleopatra. <laughs> yeah. But some of them, at least, yeah. are trans women, and some of them who weren't trans women still would have been gender nonconforming, gender nonconforming, or you know that femininity would have still been a key part of their presentation off stage mm. and so forth. So where was I like, going oh, with this?
1: I don't know, but there's possibly still a difference between their sort of on-stage persona. I don't know really what drag looked like in this period, but the drag that we see now is very theatrical.
0: Hmm. It was very theatrical, but not not as hand up as it is today, perhaps is the way to say that. Like The fact that the gimmick of the show was that you had to guess which one was actually a woman. One of the drag queens in the show says... The jewel box was not considered drag, but female impersonation. I have been referring to it as drag, but, you know, there are nuances here that I haven't gone into. Just So basically the distinction that's made with both drag queens and drag kings, female impersonation and male impersonation, is that drag is the really performative, hammed up, kind of almost parody performance of a gender, okay. and female impersonation or male impersonation is the more realistic performance of the gender. Paris Todd, who's this drag queen talking about this, says, the object was to fool the audience into believing we were real
2: women. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so is Paris Todd...
1: I'm pretty sure Paris Todd is a man, but I can't say that with 100% confidence. I mean, frankly, I think no matter how much research you did on Paris Todd, could you really be sure?
0: Well, I mean, that was another one of the drag queens in the show. I can't remember her name off the top of my head who like there was an interview with her and in the interview she said you know i transitioned in the 70s i am a woman that does make sense (laughs) (laughs) but paris i don't remember saying anything so clear about gender so yeah that kind of gives you an idea of how drag or female impersonation then might have differed from how drag queens perform now
1: okay so it was a much Subtler, I suppose, performance.
0: Yeah, it was it was flashy and showy in the way that, like, showgirls are flashy and showy. In that, you know, mm. there was still a lot of glitter and a lot of feathers and a lot of makeup. Yeah. yeah. But not in that specific drag queen style that we now associate with drag queens. Okay. So, yeah, going back to Stormy's pronouns. When we're talking about people's genders and sexualities and pronouns, we generally try as much as we can in this podcast and in life to rely on what they tell us about themselves. And Stormy doesn't fit into this model because Stormy explicitly says, it's up to you. So Elizabeth Drawbar suggests that Stormy avoided giving specific pronouns or giving out biographical detail about themselves as well, and with most lack of biographical detail about their early life. Specifically in response to the audience's desire to find out who they really, air quotes, and what their gender and sexuality really were behind the performance. So by refusing to place themselves into the binary and choose either she or he, Stormy was forcing other people to kind of interrogate what gender was and how they decided what somebody's gender was.
1: I still feel like this is interesting conversation to be having for, for someone who we have on record saying, <laughs> make no mistake, I am a woman. I'm not denying that Stormy is a woman. Like a gender non-conforming woman, certainly. Yeah. But I feel like Drauber is reading a lot into Stormy's, Stormy's- fussiness about pronouns, which I feel is kind of cancelled out by Stormy's willingness to say I'm a woman.
2: Like there are people who are like, yes, I'm a woman, and I absolutely do not use she, her pronouns.
1: Oh, yeah, no. I'm certainly, I'm not saying that
2: you're all wrong. We should be calling Stormy she. That's
1: not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I feel that what Drauber's saying about how the reasons stormy is doing this is to avoid telling people about their gender
0: Mm, mm. when
1: stormy is clearly willing to do that and stormy then is potentially making some other point Mm.
0: it's also worth noting that so most of the interviews that i read or watched with stormy are done much later in stormy's life their drag career is over there you know an elderly woman at this point and that's where the quotes where they say I am a woman come from and the quotes about their pronouns also come from these interviews but earlier in their life people were using these different pronouns for them so perhaps it is that later in life when they weren't this figure who was performing and had the newspapers randomly discussing their gender they were happy to be like yeah I'm a woman but when they were earlier in life on stage perhaps this is when they were more concerned about, just call me what you want. Yeah, I
1: guess this is true that, like, difference in time period is probably
0: meaningful there. Yeah, yeah. But it is hard to say because we don't have any interviews with Stormy from the time when they were in the jewel box. The first interview we have with Stormy is from 1971. Okay. And, you know, it's that one I mentioned that says that Stormy was raised by foster parents and never knew their parents, so...
1: Which is frankly untrue, as far as we can tell. <laughs> Which, is false, <laughs> <I think. laughs> Which is false, I think.
2: Which is false, I think.
1: So yeah, yeah.
0: It's harder to know what was actually going through Stormy's head in this time when they were in the jewel box.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. I guess I did have one more thing to say about okay. that quote where Stormy said, "I am a woman." Mm-hmm. When Stormy was talking about being a woman, they like immediately. And, like, very strongly tied it to fighting. Like, Hmm. I forget the exact quote you said, but it's like, she is a woman who's been fighting her whole life. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess, like, I'm about to make some wild speculation about how Stormy (laughs) interprets gender. (laughs) It sort of sounds like what's happening there is that Stormy's saying something about womanhood as an experience of oppression. Yeah, yeah. I guess. As separate to sort of gender identity or pronouns or Mm -hmm. i don't know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
2: and that's certainly quite a common idea like there are certainly plenty of women who understand their womanhood as fundamentally being like the fact that they've had to experience misogyny for their entire lives. Yeah. Mm. And this was certainly, like, the argument that some people expressed about why we should call Polly Murray she. And we did not call Polly Murray <laughs> she. You can go and listen to those episodes if you want to find out why. Sorry, I'm not going to explain here. <laughs> and I don't say that to, like, negate yeah. your comment, obviously. But I don't know. Yeah. Mm. There's some things... It is
0: a similar line of think.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: No, my comment there was more to say it may be that Stormy is thinking of womanhood quite separately from the sort of he or she identity question Mm. of pronouns. I don't really know how to...
0: Well, I guess part of that is perhaps womanhood is their lived experience. Like, they define their womanhood by what's happened in their life and pronouns is,
1: you know, what does someone call me? What does somebody think when they see me? Yeah, and those actually, are two separate things. What Stormy said about pronouns was like, he or she, whichever makes you most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so it's that very like pronouns are to do with people's perception, I guess, mm. for Stormy. Yeah. As opposed like, to,
2: yeah. Identifying as a woman, is to do with Stormy's perceptions of their life, whereas pronouns are to do with other people's perceptions of Stormy's life.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I guess so.
0: And I guess that's true in the way that mostly it's other people that use pronouns for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I think drawbar reads a lot into that decision, as you were saying. We can also read it as Stormy just being like, people say what they say it's their business, I do what I do, you know? Yeah,
2: We're fundamentally having a discussion about, like, not only, like, what is gender, but what is gender in, like, a time and place we didn't experience. And, like, yeah. good luck, guys. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> frankly, I've delved too deep.
0: Before we move on from our conversation about pronouns, I do want to conclude by saying that I think using she, her pronouns is a perfectly valid choice for Stormy stormy uses them themselves stormy actively says they're happy with them using he him pronouns is also a valid choice in that stormy has actively said that they're fine with them switching between the two would also be a valid choice you can basically do what you want because stormy has said it's okay but i've chosen they public reactions to the jewel review were very mixed on the one hand it was a very successful very popular show it ran for many decades toured the whole of the USA. It had a wide audience amongst both straight
1: and queer people. This is a wild question that you probably won't know. Did it have a wide audience in terms of race as well? That's literally what I was about to say in the next sentence. So yeah, yeah, I do know. (laughs) Keep (laughs) (laughs)
0: talking, keep talking. So the Juggles Review was in fact the first racially integrated drag review. Cool. <laughs> so it had black and white performers. The Jewel Box was kind of a drag show at the tail end of this style of drag show.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it continued long after most shows of its style had stopped. So I mentioned that Gladys Bentley was in a similar show that year earlier. That was kind of winding up, and the Jewel Box continued. So we don't really have that many shows to compare it to. From its time. From its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Jewel Box also performed for black and white. And mixed audiences. Talking about race. It did receive some backlash from the black community that saw it as kind of undermining the respectable image that some people were trying to build as part of the civil rights movement. Interesting. And uh, Michelle Parkinson, who made the documentary that I mentioned, actually credits that backlash with the eventual demise of the Jewel Box. Hmm. Okay. So it was picketed and boycotted oh. and things like oh, that. Oh really? Okay. Outside of the question of race, the Jewelbox review also just angered a lot of conservatives generally. Notably in Reno, Nevada in 1962, when the Jewel Box was about to come to town, the city council frantically passed a ban on, quote, any floor show or entertainment which consists of one sex impersonating the opposite sex, arguing that the Jewel Box's very nature would attract a very undesirable element to Reno. Which is basically just, you know, some very... Thinly or not veiled at all homophobia?
1: Not veiled at all, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Yeah,
0: not veiled at all. I mean, like,
2: queerphobia maybe, not just homophobia. Yeah,
0: I, I guess queerphobia. Interestingly, the show did go ahead in Reno, and the argument that the publicity man for the venue where it was held put forward for why it wasn't going against the ban was that the drag queens in the show... We're doing a tongue-in-cheek impersonation of women, not a realistic one that could genuinely be taken as women. Which we have discussed explicitly is not the case. (laughs) Yeah, which goes against what the drag queens themselves did say about the show. So that's interesting. I don't really know what to do with that, but that happened. I mean,
1: I guess he's already booked this show and like booked the theatre and everything and he's like, all right, I'll, I'll make this work.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's just kind of an argument to get it past. To combat this backlash, the Jewel Boxer's own publicity focused on its being wholesome family
1: entertainment. They may have missed that boat by a couple of decades, I think. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. The program said, female impersonation is a true art and not the burlesque. Okay. And also highlighted the long history of men in drag or men presenting in more feminine ways including everything from men playing female roles in Shakespeare to the
1: fact that Samson in the Bible has long hair. It's a thing in opera, like a fairly standard thing Mm. where women will play male roles when they want like particular voice types that mostly only women have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, presumably at this time, the opera was not seen as Subversive. subversive. I don't, I find it hard to imagine the opera being subversive in the 20th century.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I think it was that kind of thing that the Jewel Box publicity leaned on when they were being like, but this is fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: In all these conversations about how appropriate the Jewel Box is, Stormy generally is just not mentioned and it's not really discussed that as well as people assigned male at birth performing as women, there is a woman performing as a man. The gay and lesbian theatrical legacy encyclopedia bio on Stormy suggests that While drag queens did cause outrage, Stormy wasn't mentioned because drag kings were too much of a threat to kind of the idea of masculinity to even be discussed in these conversations. Because their performances showed that masculinity wasn't just kind of a default, but like femininity it was something that is constructed and performed. Hmm. A true fact, I guess. (laughs) That is a true fact about masculinity. And specifically the fact that a woman, and not just any woman, but a mixed race woman could convincingly perform and be read by an audience as a white man undermined white masculinity and so white men just didn't want to talk about that. I guess undermined everything America stands for. <sighs> yeah. In spite of this erasure from these conversations, in The Jewel Box, both stage and offstage, Stormy played a very important role. Because of their years of prior experience in show business,
1: they arranged a lot of the music for The Jewel Box and they sometimes also worked as the stage manager. When you say they arranged the music, do you mean they organized to get musicians in? Or do you think, do you mean they were literally, like, arranging music? Because that would be, like, a wild addition if Stormy could arrange music.
0: From how I remember it being when I read about this, I understood that they arranged the musical, like, musical notation and who played what. Okay. But I'm not aware of them having any musical training, so maybe you're right. Maybe it does mean they arranged the musicians. I don't know.
2: There are plenty of performers who, like, just pick up. Yeah. Like just casually pick up insane skills, though.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, was- like, Stormy was in show business and performing for 15 years before they even started in the Jewel
1: Box, so... Oh, yeah, no, I remember you saying Stormy was a jazz singer. Hmm. Yeah. I'd forgotten the part where Stormy did music. Yeah, Stormy so- was a jazz singer. Stormy didn't just walk in off the street into this show.
0: Stormy was a jazz singer for 15 years Okay. before the Jewel Box.
2: So did this MC role involve any singing? yes yeah, yeah no, didn't I
0: they sing a song called A Surprise where they reveal that they're a woman alright that's the only like specific song I know that Stormy sings so I thought I'd mention it but they do do others so Robin Rogers who is one of the drag queens in the show describes the cast as being a very close family and Stormy as being their mother
2: I
1: want to read a novel set in this setting
2: I too want this
1: You're looking expectantly at me like, go on, Alice, write the novel. You did the research. It's
0: time. It's true, I did do the research. They taught the new drag queens who came into the show how to walk in heels.
2: Oh, that would be such a good scene in this, like, fiction thing. Yeah. I just want, like, historical, like, (laughs) queer people bonding and things.
0: Yeah, yeah. All the drag queens talk very positively about Stormy, and they talk both about how talented Stormy was a performer and also just about... What a kind and lovely person Stormy was to all of them. Oh, so that's very nice. It's
2: 1969. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing sh- happened, and
0: then <laughs> <laughs> several major events happened in Stormy's life around 1969. And I don't know the exact dates of all of them. Man landed on the moon. Man landed on the moon in 1969.
2: Man landed at Cop's face. 1969. <laughs> that's like actually what happened there no that, that's that's accurate i mean probably <laughs> one policeman got one brick to one face
0: yeah so you are correct stonewall did happen in 1969 we're not going to talk about that at all that's what <laughs> i'm gonna say that's for another episode stormy was present their role will be discussed later another thing that happened around 1969 although i don't know the exact date was the death of diana no who had now been Stormy's partner
2: for 26 years. Oh, I didn't realize they have stayed together this whole time. They did, yeah. Oh, they did. I, don't know. I wonder if Diana stayed an aerialist this whole time. Stormy carried Diana's
0: photo with them in their wallet for the rest of their life.
1: Hmm.
0: And I'm not aware of them having any other relationships. I wish we knew more about Diana. I anyway, know,
1: mm-hmm. Diana sounds so cool. Yeah.
0: In September 1969, Stormy also quit the jewel box. I don't know why. They got a gun license and they began working as a bodyguard.
2: What? Oh, okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're in the next phase of Stormy's life now. (laughs) I see. (laughs) We've had jazz bands, drag king, and now bodyguard. So Stormy apparently told friends, and I don't have any direct quotes about this from Stormy, that some of this bodyguard work included working for the mob in Chicago. All right, sure. But for most of their... Later life. They lived in New York at the famous Chelsea Hotel. Where oh, okay. Every famous person you've ever heard of.
1: Also where Leonard Cohen remembers you well.
0: Where Leonard Cohen wrote that song about Janice Joplin, who was also
2: queer. What? Leonard Cohen or Janice, Joplin? Janice, Janice Joplin. Joplin? Oh, okay.
0: But the Chelsea Hotel song is about Janice Joplin. So Stormy worked as a bodyguard for wealthy families, possibly the mob during the day. I have a question.
1: When Stormy did this, Mm-hmm. Did they? Did the wealthy families understand that Stormy was a man? Or were they hiring a female bodyguard? I don't know. Because like either of those is interesting in some way. I do not know.
0: Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Yeah, both answers
0: are interesting. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Stormy worked as a bodyguard during the day, and then in the evenings they would work as a bouncer in lesbian bars.
2: Oh, okay, good.
0: Cool. Some of this was paid work, but much of it was unpaid. And Stormy didn't actually consider themselves a bouncer, saying, please don't call me that. I consider myself a well-paid babysitter of my people.
2: Oh, God. <laughs> I love it. Just want to keep <laughs> lesbians safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're still like the mom yeah. of the situation. Too yeah, all queers. <laughs> yeah, they, the
0: rest of that quote, I will just read the rest, is I consider myself a well-paid babysitter of my people, all the boys and girls. Yeah. So yeah, now they're just the gun-toting mom instead of the here's-how-to-wear-high-heels mom. (laughs) They're every kind of mom.
2: The dichotomy of lesbian moms. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, one of Stormy's friends remembers how Stormy would always step in and pretend to be her scary butch girlfriend when people
2: were giving her trouble in bars. Oh yes, that's a good genre of person.
0: So during this time, Stormy became quite a well-known figure in the New York queer scene. Also quite an intimidating figure. As I mentioned, they carried a gun and apparently they were a very good shot. There were also realized that they kept a straight-edged razor in their sock.
2: All in right. their sock. In their sock. I picture the sock to have like a cute pattern.
0: I <laughs> don't know what their sock looked like, so you can picture that.
2: It had ducks on it. <laughs>
0: so, they did have a uh, like helmet. I don't know how to really describe what sort of helmet it is. It looks most kind of like a construction hard hat, I guess, that they used to wear to pride marches. That so was kind of splotched with colorful paint. Oh. I'm just trying to give you an idea of like some fashions they had, so you can picture their socks.
2: Okay, yeah, good, good,
0: good. <laughs> so the New York Times obituary paints a very good picture of them. It says tall, androgynous, and armed. Oh M-
1: my god. <laughs> 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 that's <laughs> just like a very attractive set of words, frankly.
2: I'm just very torn between like not approving of guns as a concept and being fully on board with everything that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like human brain and monkey brain. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, tall, androgynous, and armed, Mr. Lavier roamed lower Seventh and Eighth Avenues and points between into her eighties, patrolling the sidewalks and checking in at lesbian bars. Oh my god. Imagine in her eighties. In her eighties. She kept doing
1: this work into her eighties, yeah. Imagine if you were like in trouble on the street outside a gay bar and this eighty year old woman came and like Pointed a gun at someone for you?
0: <laughs> there is actually footage in the um, the nineteen eighty seven documentary. So when they were in their sixties, of them outside a bar, like working as a bouncer outside a bar, and somebody comes up and hassles them. And they, like, move them, <laughs> move them along. <laughs> so, yeah, you can watch footage of this happening. I would like to watch footage of this happening. Okay. I will link to
1: the documentary on our blog.
2: Now you're also telling Irene to go <laughs> and check the blog.
1: Yeah, Check <laughs> out our social media at queerasfact.tumblr.com.
2: What was that URL again, Irene?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Swami's friend Lisa Canastracci also adds to this uh, quote in the obituary. She literally walked the streets of downtown Manhattan like a gay superhero. She was not to be messed with by any stretch of the imagination.
2: She's my hero.
1: <laughs> I love how she didn't enter like gay superhero territory until she was like 60. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, that's very good to know.
0: Yeah. Let's talk some more about how great Stormy was.
2: Good, right. good, good, good. Cool, let's go.
0: Stormy also did a lot of charity work. So they quit the Jewel Box, but they continued performing and singing into their 80s at queer events and at benefits raising money for women and children who were victims of domestic violence. When asked why they kept doing this work into their 80s, they said, it's very simple. If people didn't care about me when I was growing up, with my mother being black, raised in the South, I wouldn't be here. Patrick Merry, a friend of Stormy's, recalls during the AIDS crisis, he was raising money to give Christmas presents to people living with AIDS, as well as to buy presents on their behalf for their families, if they were too sick to do so. Oh, I love this game. And Patrick approached Stormy while Stormy was out at a restaurant and asked for a $5 donation. Instead of giving him money, Stormy said, you can be here for a few hours, and then came back a few hours later with $2,000, <laughs> promising to meet Patrick the next day with more money. Okay. (laughs) And in the following years, Stormy always came and found Patrick around Christmas time and
1: just gave him a bunch of money. (laughs) (laughs)
2: What a superhero, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Presumably she got it from, like, holding up homophobes outside of gay bars. (laughs) I don't know
0: where they got this money from. Stormy also remained active in queer social scenes. Well into their 80s and even 90s, they were still frequenting queer bars, also just as a patron, where they would flirt with and befriend the female bartenders and drink absolute vodka straight from a wine glass.
2: A wine glass? <laughs> <laughs> that was
0: their drink of choice, yeah.
2: If just episode 30,000. Because we've never drunk We'd vodka never from drunk- a wine yeah. glass, and we would have no idea what that experience would yeah. be like.
0: No, <laughs> a true novelty. Tasso, a trans man who knew Stormy later in Stormy's life, describes Stormy as one of the first positive masculine role models that he ever had, saying... She was a life preserver, especially for younger people. To see someone who walked the walk and talked the talk 24/7 in a time when you could get your head bashed in for leaving your house. Stormy's work and just general presence in the New York queer scene earned them the reputation as the unofficial mother of the New York queer scene. And Stormy said, "Sometimes I feel half the universe is my family." I
2: want Stormy to be my mom. <laughs>
0: Stormy also wants Stormy to be your mom. <laughs> Joy was always a fixture at the New York Pride Parade. They often led the parade in their weird helmet that I described before. And the Stonewall car, which was a 1969 Cadillac that had been parked outside the Stonewall Inn on that night in 1969. Do we have this car still? I assume so. Good. Like, there's a lot of photos of this car. I, the car must be around somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where the car
2: is. Let's find the car. <laughs> okay. Let's record um, it in the car. <laughs>
0: in 2010 for the first time stormy missed the pride parade this was so unusual that the press came around to see how they were doing articles from the time reveal that a few months earlier stormy had been found wandering the halls of the chelsea hotel very disoriented and had been diagnosed with dementia and moved into a nursing home they were now 89 and they said i have no regrets if i did i wouldn't have lived this long Stormy had no next of kin and no known family, so it was difficult for their friends to ensure they were properly cared for in the nursing home. They were worried that Stormy was largely ignored and rarely allowed out. And this is a problem that many older queer people face. Exacerbated by the fact that the law often prevents them from marrying their partner and therefore having any legal connection to their partner. Lisa Canastracci, who became Stormy's legal guardian at this time eventually, also expressed frustration at the failure of the queer community to rally behind Stormy noting that queer activism is often conducted by and for young people and leaves older members of the community behind. Yeah, no,
1: that's very much a thing. Like, I definitely feel when you talk to a lot of queer people our age and younger that they have this conception that they are the first queer generation, basically.
0: There is definitely a generational gap in the queer community. I think part of that is just the fact that a queer person
2: doesn't automatically have any queer elders in their life.
0: Mm. Yeah. So they do feel like they've figured it
2: all out themselves because a lot of the time they have. And it links into other issues, like the lack of, like, community spaces that aren't based around alcohol and sexual encounters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's true, too. You, know, you you can't really, like, meet people of different generations in that
1: space. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. also kind of forces your, like, teenage queer experience to be fairly isolated, I guess, in some ways. What do you mean? If all queer community spaces are
2: Oh, 18 plus. I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. see, yeah. Which is changing now, yeah, but I think it's like changing recently enough. I, as someone in their like early to mid-twenties, didn't have opportunities that people who are like 16 have now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's true, that's true. Stormy was supported by SAGE, which stands for Senior Action in a Gay Environment. Which is a very prominent not-for-profit working with queer elders. But a spokesperson for SAGE said that the lack of resources available to them made the amount they could do for people like Stormy Limited. And they pointed out that what older queer people need, as well as community support, is government funds. So all that negative stuff being said about the experience of queer elders, hearing people talk at Stormy's memorial service makes it clear that they were loved and visited regularly until the end of their life by both old friends and newer ones. And their friend Robert West did say that the staff in the nursing home respected Stormy and did the best they could with the resources available to them. Uh, mm Stormy passed away on May 24th in 2014, age 93. Good very old. Mm. Yeah. It's because they had no
1: regrets. Mm.
0: Before they passed away in that 2010 interview I've mentioned a few times, Stormy said they had a message for young people at the Pride Parade that they could no longer attend. They said, Just be themselves, like they've always been. They don't have to pretend anything. They are who they are.
1: Stormy was amazing, frankly. That was great. Stormy I love Stormy.
2: It's true. I second this opinion. Good. All in favor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com and can find all our other episodes on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. If you listen to us on iTunes, or if you don't and you just love us enough to go to iTunes anyway, please rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. We'll be back on the 15th of February when Jason and Eli will be talking about the 2002 novel Fingersmith and its 2016 adaptation, the film The Handmaiden. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.